0: This is Fortress on a Hill. Thank you for joining us. I'm Henry.
1: And I'm Danny. We're here to tear apart recent stories about our nation's armed forces and our veterans.
0: We hope you'll take a critical look at what's happening with our military. And we hope you enjoy the show.
1: Now, let's get started.
0: Some a pretty big movement um, in the VA administration about trying to add medical marijuana as a form of pain ma- management that veterans can use. Um, there, with, with our, our administration is, is really sending us some st- stupid, stupid mixed signals because we, we got a notice um, in mid-December that the VA was finally going to let providers talk to their veterans about how they're using marijuana, or if they're using using marijuana. And I wanted to dig into that a little bit more. Here's uh, Michelle Andrews at NPR. The new guidance directs VA clinical staff and pharmacists to discuss with veterans how their use of medical marijuana could interact with other medications or aspects of their care, including treatment for pain management or post-traumatic stress disorder. But the directive leaves in place a very key provision VA providers are still not permitted to refer veterans to state-approved medical marijuana programs since the drug is illegal under federal law with no accepted medical use. Veterans can end up penalized for ta- at times for using marijuana in VA um, pain management plans. Um, several reported that they were kicked out of a pain management program for testing positive for marijuana. Then they were forced to not receive pain medication until they were clean of any trace of the marijuana in their system. This is the kind of thing that just has me fucking fumed. You know, the, the, these, um, the article, the NPR article did reference that things like that can usually get worked out, that doctors can, can make it so that veterans aren't going that full distance without pain medication. But should that be what they have to do? Should that be the necessary step that people with chronic pain have to take in order to, um, in order to work on this?
1: It's absolutely insane and completely unsurprising given who the attorney general is, given who's at the head of the Trump Justice Department. The fact that we're still stuck on marijuana as being some sort of nefarious narcotic when alcohol, which is probably worse, right, uh, empirically, is legal, and the way we've demonized medical marijuana is – we're we're a century behind – and that makes sense, because Welcome to America, and now turn your clock back 150 years as of November 2016.
0: Like the, like, uh, the UN coming to America to study extreme poverty. Right,
1: exactly. exactly.
0: Also, there's been s- still some continued action by the Trump administration over the last few months to keep working to privatize the VA. And it's a story we haven't covered in, in big depth so far, so let me be real clear at the outset. Privatizing the VA, meaning taking a veteran's ID card and turning it into some kind of half-assed insurance provider, is a horrible, horrible idea. Veterans have really specific needs that not all docs are trained to handle, nor do they want to. Fixing leaks in the system does not imply the system is completely broken, but it's never acceptable for veterans to die as a result of a preventable condition. There's an article that I've been trying to track down about a family's experience with an older veteran relative and the extreme night and day differences between how a private hospital treated the veteran, him being somebody with severe PTSD, contrasted with going to a VA hospital. And the family was really clear about it that my, my father terrified them at the private hospital. I take him to the VA hospital and they treat him, take care of him, and, and, and he gets out of the hospital even faster. They, you know, they're willing to put in that time, but they more than that, they understand when the time is needed. Speaking of veterans' medical treatment, I'd like to take this moment to mention the loss of Mr. Vance Perry of Madison, Wisconsin. He recently died of hypothermia after he missed his ride home following a psychiatric hospitalization at a VA facility there in Madison. He had moved from Atlanta around a month ago and wasn't prepared for the extreme cold. It's unclear right now whether the VA staff erred in some way as VA staff there said he left under his own control, which they had no legal right to deny him. Um, this is a quote from a VA staffer about Mr. Perry's passing. He said, the, v- the veteran received a ride through the DAV van program for his original appointment. The hospital arranged transportation via taxi as part of our discharge planning process. It is unclear why the veteran did not utilize that transportation and return home per the discharge plan. But Mr. Perry's sister, Erica, firmly believes that the hospital is responsible for his death. Mr. Perry was hospitalized for a psychotic break following a routine appointment for his paranoid schizophrenia. She asserted that even though he was legally able to leave on his own, that doesn't mean they shouldn't have tried harder to keep him there if there was some way to do that. Erica claims that she's seen video of her father wandering off without an escort. If that's true, then someone at the clinic let this man fucking walk off and die. Working with the mentally ill sometimes means finding a way to help someone, even if it isn't in a conventional way, like tricking a guy a little bit to waiting long enough for the cab to arrive. That that should go without saying. Now, as if that wasn't enough for Erica and her family, people on Facebook started attacking her and her siblings for not having seen their father in five years. To her credit in my book, Erica went on Facebook and answered to some of her criticism. She told the accusers that her siblings and her had not seen her father in that entire five years, and that in fact they had been searching for him the entire time as they had no idea where he went. For those who don't know, this is a really common situation with families and people that have certain uh, psychiatric conditions. If they don't take their meds correctly, or they possibly maybe have a shitty provider, they can end up scared, confused, and often biting the friendly hands that are trying to help them in the process. Erica, I'd like you to know from me and from Danny, we're so, so sorry for the loss of your father. I, for one, am ashamed at the situation. I utilize the VA for all my care. I see a variety of specialists there, including several for mental health. To see this happen, to see such a a simple error result in your father's death, makes my fucking blood boil. There is no excuse for this, and I hope you're able to see an investigation through to the end and get all the details about this. If there's anything that we can do to assist you, please just say the word. And you know what? Fuck those people who came online and had the gall to criticize you without actually even knowing you or your father. I've been estranged from family for long periods of time, and it's fucking horrible. It's made that much more horrible by not knowing if that relative is being cared for properly. So they had don't even have the slightest clue what they're talking about. And lastly, on this story, guys, if you have stories like this or anything close like this, even close calls, please share them with us. People need to understand these problems happening. And generally speaking, the VA people that I deal with want to fix things. They want to know how to improve. They don't. Stonewall us when when bringing in suggestions. You know, you know what gets me about this is
1: the people who are emailing and criticizing this this poor woman are are so typical in the sense that everyone is comfortable with physical war injuries. I mean, everyone has sympathy for the guy who's missing a leg, for the guy with a gunshot wound to the abdomen. Yep. But the reality is, there's probably two to three emotional, moral wounds, right? Mental health issues that. I suffer from, that I think you're getting treated for as well, yep. that, that veterans across the board are being, uh, are really suffering through. And, and this idea that you're going to critique uh, the family situation of this individual veteran, um, uh, they are going to critique his family when you know nothing about it when you probably don't understand the nature of moral injury or the nature of behavioral health treatment in general, it, it's, it's ignorant beyond belief. And this is a tragedy. You're, I mean, you're, you're right. You said your blood's boiling and it should be. This is absolutely, it's unnecessary. Um, there should be checks in the system. And you know what, beyond the system, there are moments, like you said, where a human being could step in and do just a little more than their job. Just a little more than the regulation states to make sure that somebody, whatever it is in this instance, gets in the cab, takes the ride. In in a world where twenty-two veterans are killing themselves daily, we need to take every one of these issues seriously because, you know, this wasn't a suicide, but these are definitely related. Um, and and I would also guarantee you that most of those suicides, many of those people who are who are overdosing or or whatever the situation, probably a higher percentage of them suffer from. Behavioral health concerns rather than physical health concerns, not to take anything away from physical wounds, but uh, it's time we treat the two as equivalent. And, and I don't think we're there yet. Yeah,
0: I, I don't know. I, I, I've i sat down and thought about this a bunch of times, you know, just with the, all the various things that I have. And I, I don't suffer from any wounds that anybody could see, but I, I can't work. There's a lot of things that I can't do. But we, we don't talk about that. We don't get into the deep nature of bringing war home with you, both for the veterans and for their families, and how those things can crop up, you know, years, years later. How did, how did this only bother you now? And it's like, we don't have control over it. These aren't choices that, that veterans, you know, we, we don't want to have these issues. We got them. We brought them back with us, and they need to be accepted as a part of our society.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And, and and like you said, if any listeners have stories like this, please share them. Shoot us an email, tweet at us, and, and we would love to uh, to engage with you, maybe even tell your story in the future. All right, so my first two stories are related. The, uh, the first headline I want to run down is from the American conservative, small c, right? Small c conservative. Uh, the headline was Trump's National Security Strategy and the Great Powers. So, a lot of you may know that Trump has recently released his NSS, his National Security Strategy. We're one of the, uh, probably one of the few countries that releases publicly a uh, unclassified version of our security strategy. It, it's kind of an odd thing because a lot of it is theater, but if you look at past presidents' national security strategies, there's usually something in them that sort of defines their administration. For example, President Clinton's NSS usually was very focused on globalization and economics, right, because that was the 1990s. George W. Bush was very focused on the war on terror and spreading freedom, democracy, liberty, all his favorite uh, words or, or his favorite euphemisms. And then when President Obama came in, there was a lot of talk, again, about sort of globalization and working with partners and, you know, the United States doing a little bit less with its conventional forces but doing more with special forces and utilizing our alliances. The interesting thing about Trump's security strategy is it flies in the face of just about everything he said on the campaign trail about foreign policy. I mean, this is a guy who sold us or sold the American people his base on the idea that we're going to do less in the world. We are not going to get tied into these never-ending conflicts. And if anything, we're going to try to get along with some of our rivals. Think Russia. Now, the odd thing is that was one of the only things I liked about this president when he was a candidate. I thought that he had some fresh thinking. It was coarse, it was sometimes confusing, just given the nature of his public speaking, but there, were, there was something there. And as someone who voted against Hillary Clinton in the primaries twice, you know, I thought maybe there was something fresh that might be superior to sort of the neoliberal uh, Clinton foreign policy. But the interesting thing about the national security strategy is it's a lot of the same old, same old. It's a lot more status quo. Which makes me think, of course, that this is a creation of uh, President Trump's top advisors, many of whom are military and many of whom are status quo and tied to the war on terror policy of American exceptionalism. I'm thinking H.R. McMaster. I'm thinking John Kelly as chief of staff. I'm thinking James Mattis. The first thing I want to talk about is, is Russia and China. So the, the national security strategy refers to Russia and China as revisionist powers that are, quote, seeking to change the global status quo, often to the detriment of U.S. interests or American interests. Okay, that, that may be true in some limited form, but then again, the United States is the only country that has bases all around the world. I mean, the United States is the only country that has, you know, 12 aircraft carriers. I think China has two, one of which leaks. This isn't to say that Russia and China, and that's true, that that really is true, it's an old Soviet aircraft carrier that that leaks. But look, I'm not saying these countries aren't building their military, might not be a threat someday, but just because they're powerful, just because they have a large military, just because their economy, in the case of China, is growing, why do we have to look at them at rivals? Why does it have to be zero-sum competition? I mean, it seems to me that in a world where this... Uh, podcaster right thinks that climate change is probably going to become the major national security threat of the second half of the 21st century. You would think that framing this Russia-China competition as a zero-sum game would actually make it more difficult to obtain their cooperation on a range of issues like global warming. I mean, the world is interconnected. We've got we've got to work together, and and I'm not saying we don't hedge against these rising powers. I'm not saying we don't have a deterrence, but the way we refer to them, let's just listen to this quote. This is directly from the NSS. These competitions with Russia and China require the United States to rethink the policies of the past two decades. Policies based on the assumption that engagement with rivals and their inclusion in international institutions and global commerce would turn them into benign actors and trustworthy partners. For the most part, this premise has turned out to be false. Okay, that's Flowery language and it sounds somewhat benign. What it's saying is, Russia and China are directly rivals. They uh, they have interests that are specifically against the United States, and we have to rethink our policy towards them. It's hard to see how lumping Russia and China together as quote revisionist powers does anything except lead the two countries, Russia and China, into a stronger partnership opposed to us. It's like. If the worst thing you could ever have would be Russia and China working together against the United States, you almost couldn't do them any more of a favor than publicly in the national security strategy talking trash about both of them, lumping them together. You're going to drive these two countries who actually have plenty of rivalries and border disputes. You're going to drive these two countries into an alliance against us at the exact moment when the world needs to be working together more, at the exact moment when we need more consensus on the Security Council instead of Russia, China, and America rotating their veto to ensure nothing happens on the world scene. Look, President Trump ran as a, quote, realist on foreign policy, right? He said that we were going to try to work together with Russia and China. We're going to try to find common ground with Russia in particular. Um, I'm not saying Russia or China are always going to play nice. I am saying let's try a little less hard to drive these two into each other's arms. And pit them both against the United States at the same time. That's no realism. That's not what Henry Kissinger would have done. Uh, that sounds like McMaster, Mattis, Kelly, convincing him to essentially follow what would have been Hillary Clinton's foreign policy, which I think would have been a disaster. I don't know. Um, that's the, you know that's my rant complete on the national security strategy. But I'm not sure you know where else to take that except to say uh, maybe we should stop shooting ourselves in the goddamn dick all the time on national policy, right? <laughs>
0: Uh, <laughs> no, there's, uh, uh, it's, it's hard, it's hard to really articulate how transparent the Trump administration is, uh, uh, depending on what issue they're dealing with on, on the given day. And tra- by transparent, I mean showing their, their cards without them thinking that they're showing their cards, um, we're already losing horribly to china as far as economically goes. Russia is kind of their own thing, but at what point how much more can our economy sustain? How much more can we continue this whole that we bring everything in, America sells doesn't sell very much of anything and as soon as they find a cheaper way, they move it to somewhere else. Yeah, there's no easy answers to that, are there?
1: No. Uh... It seems to me there are two salient facts about Russia and China. Number one, Russia will, for as long as you and I are both alive and probably as long as our grandkids are alive, have thousands of nuclear weapons capable of destroying the planet, just like we do. That's salient fact number one. So the United States must learn to live in a world where the Soviets, uh, Freudian slip, where the Russians (laughs) uh, could destroy the world just as we could. We're going to have to live with that. The second salient fact is that China's economy is growing at a faster rate than the United States. There are more people in China, and probably for the remainder of the 21st century, China will be the most powerful economic country in the world. So We've got to live with that, too. seems to me the only question is, do we find a way to thread the needle and work and coexist in a multipolar world, which is what we're moving into, or do we get ourselves into a war? a limited war, a nuclear war, who knows? I mean, the world may not survive the far end of that, the nuclear end of that. we got to figure out a way to deal with Russia and China. And it, it has to be sensible, and it has to be realistic. And some of the rhetoric is scary. Now, I will say this. On China, Trump, who... Boy, did he love calling China out on the campaign trail, you know? Even the way he said it. Even the way he said it with such disdain, the way I just hated the mouthfeel of it. China, you know, the way he even said it it was kind of gross. It's like the word moist, just gross. But, you know, but he has actually kind of, I will give him this, he's scaled back some of the rhetoric on China. And and that brings me to my next article, which is from The New Yorker. Super long article. Look, Look, listeners, read The New Yorker, read The Atlantic. Read Harper's, they're the last long-form print magazines that still put 2,000-word, 3,000-word essays uh, on their pages. They're usually very strong. So this is an article by Evan Osnos. He's an East Asia expert. It's called Making China Great Again. You've got to love that title. And everyone's, everyone's stealing the MAGA uh, quote. It's, uh, it's, a, it's a quite a selling point. We should probably look into that, Henry. Um, okay. <laughs> it, he says basically that the Trump administration was divided on China. This year, you know, and that there were essentially two competing strategies. You had the psycho Steve Bannon, Breitbart, black people are bad strategy, right? He, he basically was arguing for a hard line, taking a risk of a trade war with China, following through on the rhetoric. And, and Bannon, I think, described China as a, quote, civilizational challenge, Civis- civilizational challenge. The other view associated with uh, noted global cuck, <laughs> Jared Kushner, uh, who... He actually met with Henry Kissinger, right? He's like the the paragon of uh, diplomacy among most mainstream Republicans and Democrats, even though Kissinger was himself a war criminal, and we'll talk about that maybe next week on Vietnam. <laughs> uh, but you know, the, the, Kushner was dealing with Kissinger, and, and he argued for a closer sort of collegial bond between Trump and Xi Jinping. And it does appear that the Kushner wing won out. I mean, when when. Xi Jinping came to uh, Mar-a-Lago. They seemed to get along just fine. And uh, they, were, they didn't bring up a lot of trade issues. And then when Trump went to China, he, he didn't really confront the Chinese at all, which is, is, again, interesting, because even though it may be the better policy, it's not what he promised his base. It's not what got, elected, got him elected to office. Nevertheless. The question that we got to deal with is that second one I brought up earlier. How do we deal with the rising China? You know... Joseph Nye, who's a Harvard political scientist, he's the guy who coined the term soft power. He sort of argues that even though China is growing its military and even though China's economy is growing, China still isn't the model for the rest of the world because they don't have as much soft power as the United States. You know, and, and Evan Osnos in the article talks about how soft power is, you know, comes from our civil society and it's, it's everything from Hollywood to Harvard to the Gates Foundation and that China still doesn't understand that and they haven't really opened up enough. And that's great. And I hope Joseph Nye's right. The question is, where does Trump fit into this? And Joseph Nye said that there are two things that could make him wrong, right? Because Nye's predicting that it's going to work out. You know, that really Trump's not that different. Uh, We're going to work okay with the Chinese. We're going to rise together. He says, two things could make me wrong. And to me, there were two big ifs. Number one is if he, Trump, gets us into a major war. And this, again, is Mr. Fire and Fury. So he just might. I mean I mean realistically he, he oh. this could happen.
0: Oh yeah, it's it's very it's very fucking possible. I mean, this is a guy
1: who takes the time to hate tweet Kim Jong Un but also Meryl Streep. I mean, he can't take criticism from anywhere. He gives the same exact level of rancor at both. So, I mean, it just it, that scares me. But the second one, Joseph Nye said, is if Trump gets reelected, and winds up doing damage to our nation's system of checks and balances. That if that happens, potentially, you know, the United States could lose some of its soft power. And China could rise. And those do sound like two big ifs. You know, when the author of this piece went to China, he, you know, he found that most people in China, they still don't see themselves as the world's preeminent power yet. They don't think they're going to supplant the U.S. anytime soon. But what they do realize is that China is increasing in its economic power as well as in its engagement with global problems. For example, if the United States wants to maintain its soft power and its influence in the world, especially when it becomes the number two economy, which could happen any day. I mean, depending on the study you read, we're either already number two or we're about to be number two. Fact. We have to deal with that. So Joseph Nye, right, the noted Harvard political scientist, he says, hey, but that's okay because America still has more soft power than China, which is great, but what happens when we don't act like the preeminent civilization on the planet? What happens when we pull out of the climate accords, the Paris Climate Accords? Xi Jinping has not done that. Jeez, even Syria, Bashar al-Assad's broken-ass Syria, in the middle of a civil war, signed on to the Paris Climate Change Agreement, we're out of it. We're the only country in the world. So if we're going to cede the soft power to China, and we're going to write national security strategies that essentially say, hey, they're evil, they're a threat to us, are we not setting ourselves up for one of those two big ifs, which is either A, a major war, or B, sort of breaking down America's you know, civilizational and government institutions until no one sees the United States as exceptional anymore, except the United States, because, boy, are we delusional.
0: What was the old quote about um, the Americans always do the right thing after they've tried everything else? Right.
1: Yes, right, yeah. Uh, did, is that Churchill?
0: For I some think reason it sounds I like think, it might I, be. I think it's Churchill, yeah.
1: Yeah, which is... Uh, which appears to be true sometimes. Uh, of course, the cynic in me says the United States sometimes just doesn't do the right thing at all, <laughs> even after it's tried all the wrong things.
0: Well, you know, it, the- <laughs> there's a there's a continuing wave of of we try to do the right thing in the wrong methods. Uh, a good example, I think, would be Barack Obama's support of drone strikes abroad and the missteps that he took in national security. That he set up eight years of apparatus for Trump and his administration to now come in and turn the fire on real hot. Um, You know, that it has, you have to be willing to look outside the box and see other solutions. We have to move away from the neoliberal nightmare of always getting involved and not accepting when we were involved, you know, not being willing. Having the literal historical argument with people about if we're responsible for Iran-Contra, if we're responsible for the fallout in Iraq and Afghanistan following 9-11. But it's, as you said, it's going to come down to global warming. If we do not become a part of the solution, we'll just end up being stuck to being a part of the problem and our country will go away however slowly or quickly, I don't know. But it will happen. It, 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 we have to face it, and we have to face it head-on. Like you said, this is it's something that's going to our kids and grandkids and great-grandkids. And I wonder about my great-grandchildren or grandchildren looking at the ocean as it changes. It becomes more acidic. It rises. It destroys things that used to be there. They're
1: going to have a great view when they're in the ocean, by the way.
0: <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah. <laughs> the... Uh... <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm glad you brought up climate change because I almost forgot this. I actually read Trump's national security strategy. I don't recommend it because your eyes will bleed. Those are the most boring documents. It doesn't matter if Obama writes them. I mean, Obama's people, Trump's people, right? It's not like either of them writes them. It's not even clear that the presidents read them and particularly this one. But one thing that wasn't status quo about his national security strategy is he removed all references to climate change. As if by just taking the words out of the national security strategy document that he could just make it go away. That he could just make it not be real. I mean, it's a level of self-deception that really does appeal to a lot of Americans, especially his base, but is absolutely shocking. And as we enter this multipolar world that I was talking about and that Joseph Nye was talking about and Evan Osnos in his New Yorker piece were talking about, what stands out, and this was Evan Osnos's conclusion, is that in one sense, the biggest surprise in the relationship between Russia, China, and the United States in the age of Trump is not their differences any longer, but their similarity. In all of these countries, the people are, quote, infuriated by profound gaps in wealth and opportunity. In all of these countries, the people have thus pin their hopes for the future on a nationalist, populist, nostalgic leader. Think Putin, think Xi Jinping, think Donald Trump. And that these leaders, right, these populist, nostalgic, nationalist firebrands encourage these disenchanted populations to visualize threats from the outside world as the real issue. So whether it's Immigrants from Mexico or terrorists from one of the seven countries on the list in the Middle East or for the Russians Maybe it's Chechens or Ukrainians and for China. It's the threat of the US Navy You know look don't worry about the problems your government cannot fix don't look at us Blame this other group and it really helps in America if that group is swarthy in skin tone But, uh, you know, that just seems to be our way. But what the author says, Evan Osnos, he says, China, Russia, and the U.S. are moving in the same direction. Quote, they're all trying to be great again. And that is frightening as I look at the national security strategy because that sounds like a collision course. If three great powers, each of which can destroy the world through nuclear winter after an atomic strike. If all three of those countries have populist demagogues in charge, and all three of those countries start to see each other as a threat to their own security, instead of working together towards real issues like climate change, like nuclear disarmament. Then uh, they may all try to be great again, but in the process, they may just take down the entire world
0: around them. I I I don't want to sound pessimistic, but <laughs> fuck, I I think that's what's going to happen. I mean, not 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 the. I don't know on what scale, but but. Like you said, we're, we're headed towards something. We're headed towards a, a big world something between the changes with our climate, between the way that the U.S. economy and Chinese economy is going, between uh, our extensive uh, military strategy abroad, as I'm, I'm, I'm sure you found something to take a nap on and drool on while you were reading that stupid damn thing. Um, I, I guess, like what you mentioned about People in China pointing out the wealth disparity that exists there. The question that I have is, what is the common man to do? Other than what you and I are doing right now, educating ourselves. What, aside from being a voter, and that's assuming you're not a disenfranchised voter, what can an American voter do to make this better? It's a tough question. I wish I could say, don't you wish it was
1: as easy as saying... Hey, vote for the Democrat. That'll solve it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. I wish. I wish it was that simple. I wish it was like, hey, look, just throw these throw these bombs out of party and go uh, out of office and go join the next party. This is a bipartisan issue, isn't it? Like, I don't. I don't think the situation would be all that much different if Hillary Clinton was president. At least no. on this issue, you know. At least no. on this issue, and I, uh, On foreign policy, she was a hawk, like the rest of them. Man, she may have been more than a hawk, more of a hawk than Trump. If you listen to the two of them. And the bellicosity of her rhetoric. But, you know, you said, what's going to happen? You're pessimistic, I don't blame you. I'm pretty much always pessimistic. Just ask my wife. I mean, there are little signs that we maybe should be worried. The Marine Corps Commandant, General Robert Neller, went up to uh, Norway to visit about 300 Marines who were stationed up there as of late and told them to prepare for a big-ass fight. He said, quote, I hope I'm wrong, but there's a war coming. And yeah. they also told them yeah. we're in a fight here, an informational fight, a political fight by your presence. I mean, he's talking about Russia, guys. Right? There's, it's, it, these Marines are in Norway for a, region, a reason, you know. And when he's talking about a war that's coming, I mean, maybe he means North Korea, but specifically when he talks to these Marines, he's talking about Eastern Europe. He's talking about the Baltic. He's talking about Scandinavia, and that all involves Russia. That is dangerous talk. I'm not even saying Neller shouldn't have said it. I'm not even saying Neller was wrong. But the fact that he said it, the very fact of those of, of that statement is scary. It's frightening. And then in the same, you know, a week later, we get this national security strategy that says, you know, that these uh, Russia and China are revisionist powers and we have to start rethinking our policy towards them. And this stuff starts to get pretty scary. And, you know, our audience is, is, is of course, every concerned citizen, but it's especially veterans. And, uh, hey, a lot of our listeners are probably still in the service. Family members are still in the service, and they sure as hell know a lot of people still in the service, and uh, and this is a scary time. I thought it couldn't get any worse than when you and I were in Iraq, and we were surging, and we were at the very limit of our active duty capabilities. I, I thought that was going to be the low point. I really did, and uh, and how wrong I was, because it seems like we can always go a little lower.
0: Yeah, it, it really does. And another, another question that I have, and not one we should answer today, but that we need to spend more time understanding how we have been convinced to allow our nation to remain in perpetual war. How that, had, how that idea has lasted for so long, knowing what we know.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. Shoot, we could probably do an, entire, uh, do an entire show just talking about that. And uh, maybe we will at some point because this, this notion of perpetual war, I mean, I spend my days sitting in coffee shops writing op-eds about this and uh, piecing together articles that sort of question the forever war, question the perpetual war, but, uh, you know, we can't answer it today, but it's probably the story of our generation. It's probably going to be the story of the next 20 years.
0: All right, so this next one is from Julie Watson at the Associated Press, um, and it's about a fellow named Marco Chavez, and he is finally home... Uh, Home being the United States of America after being deported 15 years ago He was charged with animal cruelty in 1998 a crime. He still denies having committed and An immigration judge ruled following receiving receiving a pardon from California Governor Jerry Brown that Chavez could return according according to the deported Veterans Support House an agency based in Tijuana to help veterans who are deported There are currently 301 veterans who have been deported with around 60 that are Mexican. For Chavez's part, he received his green card in 1989 under Reagan's amnesty program. He is one of three veterans that were pardoned this year by Governor Brown in the hopes that they can also get back their green cards. I read, uh, I, I see these almost weekly news stories about people that are torn away from their families, torn away to often to a country that they've never been to and don't speak the language. Um, Mr. Chavez was one of those people. He, he, um, and he did learn Spanish having to be deported for 15 years but when he went there it was a foreign place to him. He came to America as a child. Everything I've seen so far about the many stories of deported, deported veterans Again, families torn apart because of minor crimes conducted long ago. The biggest thing that has stuck out to me is the constant reminder about that nothing is free. Not even citizenship for somebody who serves in our military. There is no automatic citizenship when you serve, and despite having the waiting period waived for active service members, you still have to complete the full citizenship process. Like getting a retention bonus or other contractual obligations in service, It's really clear that if anyone is after citizenship through an enlistment, you need to do your own due diligence. You need to make sure that you're getting what they promised you and that it's in paper with someone's signature on it. Um, I I, I don't recall that I ever served with anybody who was after their citizenship, but the given the wide wide range of different different people that you meet in the service i'm sure that i serve with a few that i just don't know of um and why is it that troops have to go through the full citizenship process Uh, you know i would think like getting college credits while you're in service that maybe you could get some of that stuff waived because basic training taught you this and ait taught you this and it it for people that you know you're sending into a job that have very limited personal time, it, you're, you're setting them up for failure. You're setting them up to simply not be able to do that thing. And, is it, and and then the bigger question is, is it fair that someone promised citizenship or a green card for enlistment doesn't end up getting it, period? I mean, is, that's, that's I'm not talking about the jocularities of it, just that you're willing to lay your life on the line for a different country and that country isn't making good on the promises to you. That's that's where my brain gets to whenever I read some crap like this.
1: If, if you're American enough to purportedly, ostensibly die for America, I, I, I just don't understand how there's not a separate process. I don't understand how there's not an express lane for citizenship. It, it, it's mind-blowing that there could not be. It's mind-blowing that veterans could be deported. It's mind-blowing that veterans could be denied citizenship. It, it, if that's the case, then we're a mercenary army. If, if we're just taking people from all over the, the, the world and not integrating them into our own society and not calling them truly American, then what are we except a mercenary force that will take enlistments anywhere we can get them?
0: No, I, I, I reading through the, 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 the articles I read about this guy, it, it really seemed like it came down to that process of jocularity that you go through in MEPS when you're trying to sign up for things. And I can't imagine being at that point and wanting something so very personal, you know, citizenship in a different nation. And what if you don't speak good English? What if uh, there are other factors that keep you from understanding what it is that you're signing and that it that... The military isn't going to have any real part of your plan to become a citizen, even though that is your plan. Again, like you said, are we just at that point? Are we just fucking mercenaries? That there's no there's no difference there. Absolutely, yeah, it's absolutely crazy. So moving on from that one, um, I want to talk about a guy named Earl Granville. Earl is an OEF veteran who lost his left leg to an IED blast in Afghanistan in 2009. He's the guy that was huge in the news recently for carrying his friend across the finish line at the Boston Marathon, among many other marathons and extreme sporting events that this guy goes to. He also lost his younger brother to suicide, who was serving on active duty at the time that he died, which was about two years after Earl lost his leg. Now in the past, a variety of businesses on Etsy, Facebook, and other places online began using Earl's image to sell t-shirts. The black shirt Earl was wearing in the pic was ripe for being changed, so you can find him online being used to sell a variety of veteran-themed merchandise. It's also become popular during the times when NFL players were protesting police brutality, as it was then used to sell a white American flag shirt that contained the caption, I don't kneel implying that the loss of Earl's leg was seen by many as a personal loss and the players kneeling were were disrespecting that specific loss. For Earl's part, he's never given anyone permission to use his image. He's in fact contacted many of the businesses on Facebook requesting that they no longer use it. They either generally close one page and open another one elsewhere or they just flat-out and ignore his requests. When Ben Collins at the Daily Beast did a Google reverse search for Earl's image most of them returned to MEMS showing the I Don't Kneel caption. Earl travels, and he gives inspirational speeches about his life and his own personal philosophy. I talk about my ideas of battling mental adversity and living a fulfilling life full of a purpose, a passion, and a part of something bigger than ourselves, said Earl. Earl has stated he doesn't have time to track down every instance of his image being misused. However, there is a nonprofit that he's working with. That is helping him do some work uh, exactly in that direction. Now, I'd like to tie that in with a different story, and this one is much more recent. This is the story of Jen Budens, um, who lost her husband Andrew to a motorcycle accident in 2013. Andrew was an active duty Marine with three tours between Iraq and Afghanistan on his belt. So the photograph of Jen. She was laying on a blanket in front of her uh, deceased husband's grave while rocking her newborn child. She had been pregnant when uh, when she lost Andrew. And the backdrop is a perfectly maintained military cemetery, and Jen's blanket, adorned with pictures of her husband, is mostly white. So as you can imagine, this image has been turned into many a mm, meme with the definitive first-place fucking winner being in the one t- tweeted by our president prior to an NFL game in December, and the caption reads this is why we stand now putting aside the boiling feeling I get in my brain hearing about this Jen's husband he didn't even die while he was working on active duty he was on active duty but he was you know doing doing stuff on his off time not that the method of his death diminishes his loss as how a person dies is often incredibly important to the people they leave behind but does that matter to this to the dumb fucks who use this image of her grief now The last thing I want to do is make this into a specifically anti-Trump story, even though it's quite right for that. So I want to point this back towards the way that politicians of all stripes, journalists, and even people on Facebook, are politicizing our service members and their families. We saw it happen with Bo Bergdahl, through how the Obama administration handled his return, and how President Trump's comments ultimately forced the judge who decided Bergdahl's case to consider a command influence. I only came across a few nasty memes regarding Bergdahl, um, but I know that they were everywhere for quite a time, especially as his court-martial came to a close. Putting aside for a moment Bergdahl's own actions and the actions of the judge, how our nation's politicians, journalists, and internet users made and manipulated this story around Bo Bergdahl is a fucking disgrace to me. Now, these two stories today highlight some of the smaller instances where, instances, where veterans and their families are used as political props. I would love for there to be some legal protection for veterans in this way, but, personally, I don't know that that would pass First Amendment muster. People are able to use shit on the internet in pretty much any way they please. But I think it's important for us as veterans to be diligent on pushing back on this shit. Call out the people you see doing it online. The people grieving these unimaginable losses don't need their lives made harder ever, let alone right when these people pass away. I'm thinking of Sergeant Johnson's uh, widow. I'm thinking of Earl Granville I just talked about. I'm thinking of Jen Bundes. All of these people have suffered immense losses, and they shouldn't be turned into fucking political props.
1: Absolutely. Leave us out of it. Stop appropriating the veteran experience as though it's a singular thing.
0: Yes, absolutely. Yes, the football
1: was, was was a. It may seem like a minor issue, but of course, our president and vice president turned it into like a major national issue, maybe even international issue. But the people who took the time to put that quote on this gentleman's black T-shirt that you spoke of and appropriate his loss, his sacrifice, his service to say that, oh yeah, that's why this football player or that football player should have to stand during the, the anthem is mind blowing. It simplifies our experience as veterans to all be one thing. It says all veterans believe what I believe and I'm right because all veterans ostensibly believe what I believe. Not understanding the complexity of the veteran experience that there are veterans who think Colin Kaepernick should kneel and there are veterans who think he shouldn't and there are some who don't care. You can't say, well, the, you know, military people think this and everyone does it. Everyone hides behind the military. Look at the, what's her name, the press secretary, Huckabee's daughter, Huck, uh, Sarah Huckabee Sanders, a couple weeks back, a couple months back, she said, uh, well, uh, to the press, she says, you know, if you want to argue with a four-star Marine general, I'm talking about Chief of Staff John Kelly, who is a civilian now, well, then you can do that, but I just don't think it's appropriate. What? You can't hide behind the, the ribbons on some general's chest and say, oh, you can't question this guy because he's a veteran. You can't question this guy. You can't disagree with this guy because he's he used to be in the military or he's still in the military. It's an awful appropriation. It's like cultural appropriation on crack.
0: Stop. It is. No, it, Just, I, 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 it's didn't, I didn't ever thought about it that way, that it is a, a form of cultural appropriation because we do have a very distinct culture. It varies over the branches and everything, but... We do, and and people take uh, take the horrible things that we've seen and talk about them as 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 po- political poetry. Those are, those are the times, you know. The the uh, Chief Owens widow being was it was I think it was the State of the Union. Mm-hmm. I, I I you know I and again I I would never want to confront anybody who who. Thought they were doing the right thing through their grief by supporting someone by saying someone, but that's the time when you, a person should be left alone. Being in, in a in a period of grieving, why is it even had the idea to go up to Chief Owens' widow to you know the the um, actually I'm glad that I was thinking about uh, Mrs. Wilson, um and the the call with the congressman and everything right, and ha- right. how, um that, you know, ordinarily we wouldn't have known about that, but I'm so glad that we did because we need to see that. We've kind of glossed over it today a whole bunch of times, but the president is our arbiter of the military. He is the person that the world looks to to see what that is. And so when he doesn't treat people with respect, when he those specific moments and when his underlings, when his peons come behind him and try to clean up his shit, all of that, fits into this right here, this exact thing we're talking about. Um, and it is, you. it is. You, you, I, I, I'm, just, I'm kind of blown about it. It, it's, it is. It's It's a form of cultural appropriation.
1: And it's the lowest form of political behavior to, to use a widow or a soldier or a veteran or a deceased veteran or a gold star mother as a political prop is the lowest form of human behavior that I can think of. And everyone does it. Everyone does it. Both sides. I mean, it's a little worse, I think, on the hawkish political right because they are more likely to think inappropriately but think that all veterans are on their side to think that they can speak for the military because they're conservative and supposedly so are we but it happens on both sides everyone does it it's like a tool that they use to bludgeon each other
0: yeah well i've
1: got the military vote or well a general said this so it must be right what you know what a general is a general is an old dude you run into at the gas station because he's just a regular guy. He's only yep. a general if you happen to live in the fake little military world where you play the game that his stars mean something. And he's just a human being is what I'm saying. And that's, yes. that goes for yes. me, it goes for you. Let's, let's stop hiding behind these people. Let's stop using them. Let's stop using their sacrifice. Let's stop saying that you only have credibility if you're a veteran or you only have credibility if you're a soldier. It's the same kind of thing we see with cops, right? Where it's a... Uh, well, you know, the police do a difficult and dangerous job, and you really can only talk about these race issues and about these uh, brutality issues if you're a cop. If, if you're not a cop, shut up, you know, because you, you don't know anything. It, it's the same sort of intellectual yeah, yeah, yeah. weakness, right, and and just a paltry argument when you get down to it. But uh, I'm sick of it. I think we both wrote about this in different articles, uh, specifically surrounding the NFL kneeling yeah. debate, but it's bigger than that. You're right. I think you're... Bringing up that State of the Union address was unbelievable. And I just got to say one more thing. Again, I really try not to make this a let's bash the president show because it's it's not the idea. I think I think these issues are bigger than one president. But one of the things that appalled me about that State of the Union address was the way the current president bragged about how he got the, the largest or the longest standing ovation in the history of State of the Union addresses when the camera panned over to uh, Chief Owens' wife. And to me, it was like what what won't you make about yourself, yeah. Mr. President? What won't you appropriate and make about you? It's, it's almost amazing. Uh, and these guys who, like you said in the original story that we've gotten off of, but I think it's all related, the people who are creating memes where they take over these, this guy's T-shirt and try to you know use him for some sort of political agenda, it's, it's really no different. It's the same level of just like political narcissism really is
0: thank you for joining us today please come join the conversation at www.fortressonahill.com you can also find us on twitter at fortress on a hill or on facebook at www.facebook.com forward fortress on a hill we want to hear from our listeners about the topics and issues pertinent to america's military and veteran communities and last but certainly not least analyze your news and its sources very closely verify everything you read and remember that no one no matter how powerful are above criticism especially those with the power to send others into harm's way we'll see you next time